0: Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, this time coming from a, a beautiful room in the grounds of Bath Spa University's postgraduate centre in Caution. Some of the streets around here have been used for filming in Poldark, but I'm here today to interview Samantha Harvey. Samantha is the author of a book called The Shapeless Unease, which is a memoir of a year of not sleeping. It's a memoir and more as we will discover but Samantha at a surface level this is your story of a year without being able to sleep. When did you first become conscious that this was a serious problem for you and that you weren't just having a few bad nights?
1: I think because I was always a really good sleeper um, it took me a really long time to realise that this wasn't just a passing phase and I was it was entrenched and I was stuck in it. It took me way too long because I think I had quite extreme, severe insomnia for probably six or seven months before I conceded that it was a thing and it wasn't about to go away. I just, prior to that, kept thinking, you know, this will pass, it's nothing. I mean, I was very disturbed by it, but I also had only known 40 two years of good sleeping so I thought that's that would just return and this was a blip Um, but it didn't so it took me a long time to realise that it was a problem.
0: So you were one of these people who slept without any qualm literally put your head on the pillow and you're out.
1: Yeah I was one of those awful (laughs) annoying people yeah hadn't it didn't really matter what was going on in life and actually prior to getting insomnia I had a couple of years of of quite severe anxiety, which also wasn't really consistent with my personality, but really uh, kind of self-fulfilling and persistent anxiety. And even through all of that, I slept fine, sleep was never the problem. (laughs) but I'm sure that that anxiety was a precursor to the insomnia. I'm not, you know, they're, they're clearly linked in some way, although I don't fully understand how even now.
0: And how extreme did the insomnia become?
1: Well, I don't know how extreme it was compared to other people's, because I don't really know that much about other people's experience of insomnia. But for me, it felt extreme, in that I was having three or four nights a week of zero sleep. I would just go to bed, lie there awake until eight o'clock in the morning and then get up without a a minute of sleep. And, uh, And I was doing that, you know, almost, it was pretty much every other night I got stuck in a pattern of zero sleep. Then a night of what started off being good sleep and then just that itself deteriorated. So increasingly less good sleep on the on the good night and then a, a night of zero sleep again and it went on like that for a long time
0: that is hardcore i'm someone who has experienced bouts of insomnia of waking up in the early hours often around three o'clock in the morning having gone to bed maybe at eleven thirty or midnight being then unable to go back to sleep and not just being unable to sleep being gripped by night terrors yeah. by panic attacks I can't imagine what it's like to simply get zero sleep and experience that three or four times a week.
1: Yeah, it's really debilitating and um, actually a, a very serious problem and I don't think it's it's taken seriously because other people aren't there with you in the night. They don't know exactly what it's like and I don't think the the enormity of insomnia is really grasped by people and I understand that because before I had insomnia I didn't understand what it could be like or what it meant but like you I also have or have had these um awful terrors in the night and panic attacks so it's not just that you're awake it's that you're awake and you're tormented you know not sort of lying there happily pondering what color you're going to paint a wall or a trip that you're about to go on you're you're tormented and you're left with your own mind which won't relent and I think that's the worst thing about it that has certainly been the worst thing for me is this sort of the torment of being stuck with your own mind
0: (laughs) yes for people who think well okay then you can't go to sleep get up and and do something useful there's a different quality to insomnia isn't there and you reference saints and demons, which are something that you've written about in your fictional work previously, but these saints and demons nipping at you psychologically, mentally, all through the night.
1: Yes, yeah, so there's, um, <clears throat> you know, famously in the Middle Ages there would be this, this belief that at your deathbed the, the angels and the devil would come, and they would each be vying for your soul, and they would each try to, to persuade you to their cause so the angels would try to persuade you to repent of your sins and to come to heaven and the and the devil would would try to do the opposite and i've always had that feeling of you know lying in bed that there's a battle going on and i don't know which side is going to win <laughs> and actually i i kind of do know which side because if i'm not asleep by five, 4 or 5 in the morning the devil wins <laughs> you know um and things get very dark and it felt like that kind of epic yeah, battle for my soul every night, which side was going to win out.
0: And let's be clear as well, you did pursue various remedies for your sleeplessness. You had cognitive behaviour therapy, you took tablets. Did any of those treatments have any effect?
1: Um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Okay, so there have been some things I've done which have helped somewhat. Um, I took a sedating antidepressant, which worked very beautifully for about a month, and I got good sleep. And then I became resistant to it, and it stopped. But I took that for quite a long time after, and it did help to a degree, but not, you know, that it was a a sort of ever decreasing amount of help. Um, But I. I th- I found that the inability to sleep feels like a failure it, and I, I've tried to think my way around that and think it isn't a failure, it's just what it is, you know, it's not a failing. Um, but you, you feel night after night you fail to do this thing which is the most natural thing you, a, a human or a, an animal can do. you somehow lost the ability to do something which is absolutely fundamental to your to your well-being and to your survival ultimately so then you try all of these other treatments and they fail too so it just compounds the feeling of failure And, and I found the more I tried to seek help and find treatment the more it just compounded my sense that not only was I failing at sleeping but I was also failing at being helped (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, you talk about that, don't you? The, the council is saying that you've got a a yes but mm-hmm. mentality when you seek help, because the council is saying you've got to have a a yes mentality. He accuses you of having a a yes but mentality, mm-hmm. but your perennial yes but is yes but I can't get to sleep. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's difficult to stay mentally buoyant and resilient and resourceful when you've had. Four hours sleep in three nights it's very difficult. No, no one can do it. so you get stuck in this in this horrible, intractable cycle of of uh not being able to sleep and so worrying about sleep and fearing it. I mean, I would go to bed and I would be full of adrenaline i don't know if this happens to you, but you know you get into bed it's a time where you're supposed to just kind of let everything go and and you go into this highly adrenalized fearful state as if you're in a war zone and in that condition you're trying to go to sleep so then you can't sleep so then the next night that adrenalized state is even more pronounced and so it goes on and on and on and naturally the more sleep deprived you are in my case anyway the more sleep deprived I am the less able I am to go to sleep.
0: And that's a horrible vicious circle isn't Mm. it? Certainly. I can fall asleep on the sofa, watching yeah. the television, watching Match of the Day, as I frequently do, <laughs> snoring away, much to the chagrin of my partner. I'll then troop upstairs, obviously ready for sleep. Yes. Light goes out, eyelids open, and, and that's at the point at which, sometimes anyway, the terrors can grip me, because I'm, I'm fearful of not being able to sleep. I also find that I'm fearful of sleep itself
1: yeah i completely i completely get that i um i I have that I can fall asleep you know I fall asleep reading my book in bed and i put the the book down and can't go back to sleep again for the whole night. i mean it's not that our bodies aren't wanting sleep it's that somehow the mind intervenes and it's interesting because while our minds are very wonderful things and great at problem solving. They're useless when it comes to sleep. They have no place there. Um, Sleep is sort of the opposite of the thinking mind. And as soon as your mind starts to get involved in in trying to problem-solve sleep, everything, the game's lost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Death stalks this book. I don't want to give anybody who hasn't read it the impression that this is a... A doomy or gloomy book, it certainly isn't. There are some great flashes of humour in the book, many flashes of humour, but underlying it all, there is this sense of either impending death or recent death. Your cousin Paul had passed away Mm -hmm. without anybody finding his body for a couple of days. There was the death of your family dog Mm -hmm. as a child. Death is always present on its pages.
1: Yeah. My insomnia started uh, around the same time that my cousin died and I don't think that was a causal connection but the two things became very kind of wrapped up in one another and I was very horrified by his death Um, and by the idea of him being buried I hadn't really known anyone close to me to be buried before so I became, you know, in a very macabre way but I think things do get quite macabre at three in the morning. <laughs> um, I would think a lot about him being underground and in a, in a panic about it and I think it keyed into a lot of quite midlifey fears actually of of um what's next not for just yourself but for your family, all the people you love. And um I think when I When I turned forty, it was quite a marked thing for me. It was almost—it's almost funny, you know how how symbolic it was that sort of pretty much exactly as I turned forty, I started to to develop all these anxieties. And I think it was for me this sense of cresting a hill and being able to see over the other side of it for the first time. And the other side is my life from forty onwards. towards death and suddenly being very afraid of all the things that could happen and I I felt I no longer had youth to protect me you know officially I was no longer young so that was no protection and 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 I know in a way it all sounds very self-indulgent but I think we do grapple with these things in life and we have to reckon with our own um with with our own kind of frailty, and I think that's a lot of what was happening for me. That I was beginning to, to see what was ahead for myself and others, and then my cousin's death seemed to um, catalyze that, and and became a symbol really for how how very fragile and arbitrary the events of our lives are, and and how's you know, how we're not ultimately we're not protected by anything.
0: If it was just a book about your insomnia I'm sure it would be relatable to many people you know you would have an audience for that but it seems to me the book is actually much more than that it's given you the opportunity to explore the world of sleep there's an explanation of the the sleep cycle in there there's a meditation on a tribe who only have words for the present tense, and you speculate. <laughs> Presumably these people don't suffer from sleeplessness or the, the terror or the dread of sleeplessness that you've gone through because of that. And woven into it as well, there is a little bit of fiction about a fellow who commits a robbery but leaves his wedding ring at the scene of the crime, is haunted by the guilt of the robbery, is haunted by the possibility that his wife might find out that he's lost the ring as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that the thing about this book is that it is... Um, how, how would you describe it? It does have form and it does have narrative because I think I'm a novelist at heart, so I can't help but, even just by instinct kind of giving shape and narrative to things but ultimately it was written in uh, bursts very sleep deprived bursts where my state of mind was raw and uneasy and, and with this horrible wired electric energy that you get when you're very sleep deprived you're kind of over adrenalized but it doesn't feel good at all And it was written from that place, so I wrote whatever came. And I didn't have any sense that this would become a book, um, least of all a published one. I mean, that was never the aim of this. It was purely a survival mechanism. I wrote because writing's what I do, and it's how I negotiate my experience. And I couldn't write a novel. I didn't have it in me. Uh, I was too knackered. (laughs) So I just started writing and this is what came out and I had no I, I don't want to say I had no control over it because obviously it was me writing it but I, I didn't have a design and I didn't stop whatever came I just allowed it and I went into instinct and the whole book was written from there so yeah I would find that I was momentarily obsessed by a particular thing like this this Brazilian Amazon tribe.
0: Is it, is it the Praha? The
1: Piraha, I think it said. But, you know, I would find that whatever I became obsessed with, it would loop back round to sleep in the end. So there's there's this obsessiveness about the book that is just utterly self-obsessed when it, when it comes to sleep and how to get it. So I would be writing this quite, you know, on the face of it, balanced piece about the Piraha tribe. And then I would start thinking, oh, maybe that's why I don't sleep, because I've got too many words for the past tense. You know, <laughs> you start to become very obsessive about it and think that there's this secret of sleeping that you haven't discovered yet, and that maybe you can discover it and that everyone else has it, and you've just got to work out what it is. So... And of course it's all nonsense, but that, I think that's why <laughs> the book ranges so much, because your mind ranges, doesn't it, when you're, when you're sleep-deprived. You, you can't focus, you can't settle. And so the book is, is a kind of simulation, I suppose, of, of that experience of being without sleep for a long time.
0: And you do write about yourself in the third person as well. It isn't all just me, 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 if mm-hmm. we forgive that, but you talk about the patient yeah. The patient is you, yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you know you can be quite cold and analytical about yourself, and quite harsh on yourself as the patient.
1: Yeah, I mean the times I just got so sick of myself. I'm like, I'm fed up with this. I'm fed up with thinking my own thoughts. I need to get out of myself somehow, um, and and sort of turning sort of turning the lens a little bit and making myself the subject you know and in in that there's a, a kind of spoof case study at the beginning of a of an insomniac who's evidently me um and it is it's a sort of parody of a case study because it tries to pinpoint all sorts of triggers and aggravating factors and and really the the my feeling behind that was, it's all rubbish, you know, we don't understand anything about sleep, we don't understand anything about ourselves, you know, we're trying to unlock the mystery of ourselves, and of, often in quite mechanical, medicalized ways, and it doesn't work, you know, we can't say, this causes that, if this, that, it doesn't work that way, and so I think those bits where I, I kind of go into third person and make a case study of myself are born of frustration, really, at the the futility of the effort to try to medicalize people and turn them into types.
0: And I would never suggest for a moment that you enjoyed insomnia. You speak at one point of having abiding feelings of anger, loneliness, despair and fear. And you talk about loneliness, but you're not lonely. You have a partner who you refer to in the book. So, But this is such a, a very personal journey. And as I say, I don't want to in any way suggest that you enjoy this process but maybe it just is your novelist eye. so when you dis- when you're discussing for example the decomposition of the body of your cousin there is almost a relish with which you describe the body's enzymes attacking itself
1: well, I just think it's amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, take take away from it the fact that it was my cousin I was talking about, but ultimately it wasn't. It began there, and then it, it just start talking about the process of a body decomposing, which sounds, you know, jolly, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, it's incredible, you know, to discover that we that we have in us all of the mechanisms and you know, all the enzymes, the bacteria. That are just waiting there in us, dormant, to kind of clean us up after we've died. You know, it was a, a very beautiful, elegant system in a way, but also, if you're so minded, it's quite a horrifying idea too. That you know, in us, there are all of these kind of enzymes just waiting for their chance to undo you, to unexist you. And I find that. Well, I, I mean, I, I find it wonderful and beautiful and awful in all the ways that life is.
0: I talked about, if you have insomnia, certainly in my case, if you, this sense that you fear not sleeping because you know it'll ultimately have debilitating health consequences for you. If nothing else, you wake up in the morning. If you do get a couple of hours feeling pretty groggy and feeling pretty rubbish and not being able to function properly. But the fear of sleep itself, and certainly for me that's associated with the fear of entombment of entrapment sometimes i have dreams about that you know quite vivid and terrifying dreams Mm. maybe that's just me i don't know but do you fear sleep in that way yourself ever
1: no i don't think i do i think i love sleep
0: (laughs) um even today you're speaking having not had particularly (laughs) much of it overnight
1: yeah i i've become sort of in love with sleep in the way that you're in love with something you can't ever quite have enough of but it's really interesting what you say because the, you know that that connection between sleep and death is you know it's a very in a way it's a very hackneyed one but actually what a peculiar thing sleep is that for if we're lucky eight or so hours a night we become unconscious and paralyzed and we don't remember what we do and and we do have a a, a life of the mind but it's all subconscious in dreams and what a strange thing dreams are too and and we don't understand anything about sleep even now in the 21st century we don't understand why or how we do it so yeah it's that that loss of consciousness a loss of agency which is so much like death and it makes absolute sense to be afraid of that and especially without getting into to sort of armchair psychology but if that goes back to something in childhood where the two things got conflated in some way or a fear that you know if you go to sleep a parent might leave or something might happen you're going to be abandoned there I think that's a very rational fear actually
0: and you had your own family experience of that as a child that you write about in the book, didn't you? You had a family breakup, which relates to the, the dog anecdote that we referred to earlier. So, I mean, you've, you've got that... If it is a trigger, you've got that trigger in your own life.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly. In my case, my parents divorced when I was nine, and it was my mum who left. And that was a calamity for me, you know, at that age. And I was very, very close to my mum. And I think that that's informed an awful lot of of my fears as an adult you know and and again it comes back to midlife these things tend to catch up with you in midlife don't they you kind of cruise through your adult life thinking i seem to have got through that fine <laughs> i don't seem to have any neurosis about that that's 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 all fine you know i'm a, i'm i'm past that and then you realize that there's so much stuff that's not worked out uh, around often you know abandonment and rejection and just fear of loss you know that it comes back and it, and it needs to be worked through it needs to be seen and worked through and I, I am a believer in that and I don't think that there are these great kind of shining moments of epiphany where you just see everything clearly and then you can transcend it somehow and then you walk free into the rest of your life unburdened but I think there's a kind of reconciliation that you can have and it's a process with your own past and with the things that have really haunted you for all of, all of your life and that you haven't really ever understood. And then you, you begin to see them in midlife for some reason and it is an opportunity to reconcile yourself with them in some way.
0: So uh, although you're, uh, you've said it, you know, against the over of insomnia, you think there are these triggers perhaps in childhood and you've also alluded to stress perhaps that you experienced in the time leading up to your, your most intense insomnia?
1: Yeah, I mean, nothing comes from nowhere. I, I think, you know, I can't hand on heart say, I was a great sleeper and everything was fine and I suddenly stopped sleeping and everything was awful. It isn't like that, you know. There were so many things that led up to it that I may I may never really understand, but... I think there's always the invitation that we have to, to look at what's going on and to try to understand it as much as we can. And to not, it's not about finding root causes, but about recognizing how you feel about something and learning to accept it and to not fear it and not get stuck in, in sort of old reactive modes of, of dealing with things. So I am a believer in that. But as I say, I'm not necessarily a believer that that will be the great redeeming kind of cure. It's not. It's a much messier process than that.
0: Yeah, I remember doing an overnight radio phone-in for two and a half years, and the point of the night at which I would almost routinely get the best call of the evening, the most honest, Mm. the most revealing, was at 3.45. And there was just (laughs) something, 3.45 to 4 o'clock, the darkest hour. I always used to call it that. You know, night is at its pitchest it's before the dawn breaks, generally, except in high summer, and, and that's the moment at which people feel, I think, certainly me, the greatest despair at, mm. at their life or their, their lack of sleep.
1: Gosh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I can second that. It is, it is a horror, that time of night. It's a horror. I don't know why. I suppose you're alone, aren't you? And you feel that everyone else is asleep, and and there's and there's something about darkness that takes perspective away literally and metaphorically and and you're left with the contents of your own head and I think that we all have all of us have things that haunt us trouble us of course we do and some of them are quite deep and they they want out and I think that's one of the hardest things about insomnia because there's so much opportunity for them to come out when you're awake all night, but it's the time that you can at least deal with them because you're alone, you're exhausted, you're frightened often. It's no place to deal with them. But then in the day you can't deal with them because you're too exhausted and battle-weary. You know, So it's a very difficult problem. I guess it does, like any other problem, offer opportunity to try and understand yourself a little bit better Mm.
0: ultimately and this is where I'm afraid we come back to death again it's something that you can only experience alone and you reference your partner and you apologize to the people you've kept awake Mm -hmm. through your insomnia but there is something very personal about this journey
1: yeah that's exactly it it's nobody can do it for you just as no one can die for you (laughs) no one can live for you no one can sleep for you and it's um it's not like anything else in that way any other problem that we have you know if you if you were starving someone could help you by giving you food but if you're uh if you're kind of very sleep deprived no one can help you by giving you sleep you're on your own with it and i think that's why i mean i don't know i i'm this is these are all very kind of it's a movable feast for me, the way I feel about sleep. But um, I think that's why it torments us so much, because it keys into all of those nascent feelings that we have of being alone, of being isolated, of, of having to do things without other people. And I, I think that the, the reality of other people, and there's a section in the book about this, about the solace of, of other people, Just their presence, their being there, not being alone is what makes life livable and bearable and often joyful. And the feeling of not being able to sleep and for no one else to be able to do it for you and you being on your own stuck with it is the opposite to that solace that you have from just the society of other people. Just Just seeing someone in the street, not necessarily even talking to them, but just seeing them, you know.
0: There will be people who say, well, why couldn't you just take a sleeping tablet?
1: Well, I do. <laughs> I, I, not often, I, I sometimes do. But um, for a start, they're not awfully good for you. Also, you can get, become tolerant to them very quickly, so you don't want to take them too often and you become addicted to them. And also, for me, they just don't really work. Um, (laughs) they're just not very effective so I can't you know if I could take a sleeping pill and be guaranteed eight hours sleep great
0: (laughs) at the risk of coming over all fanboy I love your book but I loved it almost before I read it because somebody else was talking about an experience that I've gone through I think there is certainly a wider recognition in the mainstream media now of the need to get sleep and the need to get good sleep but insomnia is beyond that isn't it it's it's about having no sleep and I think that's something that is very little reported on very little talked about and I I think part of it is that there is some element of it and I don't know why I have this feeling that it is almost like a shameful secret
1: Yeah Um, there's a feeling that my experience from seeing health professionals particularly um, is that you are infantilized often. You're you're either you're either made to feel that you have done something kind of naughty. That's why you're not sleeping. You're doing something wrong that you shouldn't be doing. You're, you know, you're drinking too much coffee and you're looking at your phone too much and you're having too hot a bath before bed or you're not exercising enough or you're exercising too much or your uh, your room is too warm or whatever, all this nonsense, rubbish stuff that people come out with um, that makes you feel like you're in some way either naughty or stupid because everyone can sleep, why can't you? You know, it's easy, you just have to stop being stupid. And um, I've never really in my life come across so much patronising advice from from health professionals, you know, I don't mind it from other people. If someone says to me, you know, if a friend says, "Why don't you have a Roy Bosch tea before bed?" You know, I think, well, thanks for the advice, <laughs> so that's not going to cut it. But I don't mind. You know, it's it's advice. Well meant. It's yeah. well meant. Yeah. But the the stuff that you get from health professionals is of different magnitude. It's 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 really short tempered, impatient, patronising. Um, you know, you. You should be able to do this thing why are you bothering me when there are people who have real illnesses um why can't you just stop being neurotic and just start sleeping again
0: isn't there anything to that advice you know don't look at a tablet last thing at night or don't look at your phone last thing at night before going to bed don't drink too much coffee i mean there there is a grain of truth surely at the very least in in those arguments
1: i think if you're playing video games for 18 hours a day and you're drinking 10 cups of coffee um, or maybe you're doing you know extremely high octane workouts at 11 at night, maybe, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who do those things and sleep well anyway, <laughs> but maybe, yeah, you know, certainly the advice to only have two cups of coffee might be good advice if you're drinking 10 or to only play video games for five hours a day, that might be good advice. But you know for most of us who are living relatively kind of moderate lives I think it's honestly I think it's all bullshit really I mean I and I think it's patronizing and uh, and I think it makes you feel um utterly ho- hopeless because you've tried all those things and anyway you used to sleep and you didn't have to do those things you used to have a have to have a kind of Mediumly warm bath an hour before bed, exactly an hour before bed, <laughs> you know, and, it, and and they don't help anyway, and it's, and it seems to just point towards a, a gross misunderstanding and, and and an almost lack of desire to understand what might be going on for the insomniac.
0: At the end of this, I don't want to give too much away, but there is good news, and uh, all the way through the book, I'm reading this, thinking, well. There's a bit of me that that doesn't really want to talk about this because I'm fearful, and have been fearful, that in talking openly about it, it might somehow stimulate the insomnia, which has for me become less acute than it maybe was six months ago or a year ago, but it certainly is still present in my life. So I'm afraid that by talking about it I will somehow provoke it to come back. But the positive news is that you know mine has become less acute, less frequent than it was uh, and it was never as acute as yours but yours also has become less acute hasn't disappeared but you are getting much more sleep than you were
1: yeah so there's a section at the at the end of the book which is kind of tongue-in-cheek called cure for insomnia and it's very tongue-in-cheek and i'm i'm sorry if you if you get to the end of the book and come to that section and think, oh, thank God, here it is.
0: (laughs) You'll need a river nearby, for starters. (laughs) Um,
1: And as you say, yeah, the section is about uh, river swimming and open water swimming. (laughs)
0: I've got a few canals in Birmingham I could try it in. (laughs) You
1: know, I'm not sure. Well, a canal might be the answer in that it might hospitalise you for a few days. (laughs) Um, But, of course, river swimming and lake swimming is not a cure for insomnia, but in the moment that you get in the water and you get your head under for that moment it's a cure for insomnia. It's been the thing that one of the things, along with writing writing about this about insomnia and writing this book, it's been the the thing that has most sustained me through it because
0: So you have gone night river swimming. Not
1: night river swimming but in the day and in and in very sleep deprived states often and i just get my head under water and it's cold and it's all encompassing and it's all your senses are engaged in it and in that moment everything not just insomnia everything just disappears it's gone and i find that an incredible release and sure that isn't a cure but there's something in the ability to do something like that that just dissolves your problems for a moment, that that gives you enough hope to think this isn't all there is, you know, the suffering isn't all there is. There's some other way of being and, and that's open to me and accessible still. And also which is sort of the meditative note on which the book ends, really the cure for everything is that it passes. And we don't often understand how or why. We never know when, but things pass. And this will pass. And I wish it would pass sooner. <laughs> but it passes. And when you're awake in the night, that passes. And it's morning, and that night's gone, and it was a disaster. But it's gone. It's behind you. And there's a new day. And it's that recognition of of how transitory everything is and that in that there is a lot of release from that from the the treadmill of suffering and of thinking this is always going to be this way because you know it's very well documented that humans can cope with pain and suffering much better if they know that it's temporary and I think for me trying to reinforce that idea to myself in the night this is temporary. This isn't going to last forever. I don't understand it, but here it is. But it's not going to be here forever. I will sleep again. I can sleep. I will do it again. It has been a great help to me to stop me going down the path of this is never going to end, this is my whole life, I'm going to have to give up my work, I'm going to have to you know, throw everything out the window. It's been a great... Um, that's been a great comfort to me and very sustaining, and I think swimming and also writing have been two things that have encapsulated that mindset of this is the here now, harness it, live in it and accept it's going to pass."
0: Really good speaking to you, Samantha Harvey, author of "The Shapeless Unease." Thank you.
1: Thank you, Adrian.